Welcome to Cryptic Chronicles, a show dedicated to exploring the unexplained mysteries of existence in this ineffable universe we call home. In this episode, we're going to go into part two on our series on the Nephilim. And as I said in the intro of last episode, if you're very religious or attached to dogma or anything like that, then skip this episode or the entire series on the Nephilim I'm doing altogether. It's going to cover a different interpretation of your beliefs and you may find it offensive. And I'm not trying to prove anything to anyone, nor should anyone believe anything I say. So no need to grab the pitchforks or call the Inquisition. Anyway, in this episode, you and I, dear listener, are going to go into the fate of the biblical Nephilim, as well as their angelic parents, the Watchers. We'll look at Enoch's journey and uh, walking in the heavens with the angels as well as his ultimate fate. But the books of Enoch are just the beginning, because what if their documentation was just a way that humans could make sense of things far beyond their current comprehension, not only of the world, but of the cosmos as well. According to ancient astronaut theorists, it's extremely likely that many of our ancient encounters with gods or Divine entities in general were of alien nature. Zachariah Sitchin may be one of the most well-known, but there are many others. And there are many real-life historical accounts and cultures analogous to the Nephilim, as well as the Watchers from pretty much around the world. Legends of these beings seem to be universal and uh, a part of humanity's ancient primordial past that is forgotten to time. So buckle up, because it's time to get weird. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and you're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Books of Enoch were heavily influenced by Hittite, Canaanite, Babylonian, Assyrian, but mostly Sumerian mythology. And throughout the ages, it's been attacked and destroyed by the Christian church and to an extent also, uh, well, let's just say the Abrahamic beliefs in general. Many religious authorities have tried to wipe the apocryphal books from history and uh, they almost accomplished that goal. Yet references to the books of Enoch are, oh, and I'm saying the books of Enoch because I'm just throwing in all the apocryphal texts as well as all the books of Enoch all into one thing. So when you hear me say that, I'm kind of referring to all of it without elaboration for just ease of narrative. But there's references to the books of Enoch all throughout the Bible, even the New Testament, with uh, no details or going into any of the subjects concerning it. The books of Enoch greatly influenced early Christianity and Gnosticism. It was a myth pretty much for the most part throughout history after the turn of uh, BCE to CE. The Dead Sea Scrolls though, when, when they were found, we almost got a complete full compilation of the apocryphal texts and the most complete copies of the books of Enoch in their purest form. 
Well, they're still edited and altered, of course, but it's the closest to the source. I explained a lot of history of the Bible in the last episode, and to give context to everything, give us a like a firm foundation, and basically just show how much this uh, lore on the Nephilim has evolved over time. And the fact that things are not really as they seem concerning translations of the Bible, with the boy King Josiah changing Hebrew religious practice forever, and Yahweh not necessarily being what mainstream religions think he is. With the word Elohim actually being plural as in a pantheon, and the word used for the watchers in the Bible mistranslated. These watchers being referred to as the Ben Elohim, and often translated as the sons of God, which is wrong. The accurate translation is the sons of the gods. And we also talked about how all the origins of this come from a much bigger picture than a single culture. And many of the Hebrew words used to describe them straight lifted from Canaanite culture. The Elohim can also be translated as the powerful ones, the shining ones, and in Sumerian, the Elder Gods. There's your recap for last episode. So let's pick up with the fate of the Watchers and the Enochian Nephilim. When the 200 Watchers wanted to descend to Earth and defy their divine duty, they went to their leader Samyaza, and at first he was very opposed to the idea because he said that he would be the only one taking the blame and that God would directly come to bring him judgment but it didn't take long for them all to come to an arrangement where they made vows with each other, placed curses on each other, and all decided that they would suffer any consequences together as a whole. These sons of the gods knowingly defied their duties, probably with a good idea of what would await them for their transgressions. Yet the Watchers did it anyway. Which is hard to think about, because would they genuinely risk eternal suffering just to have sex with mortal women? I personally find that challenging to believe and think there's a much I think that there's a much uh, there's a bigger picture behind the original versions of the story which was lost back during the tales of Enoch and the Nephilim during the days when the tales were just an oral tradition passed down tribally I mean after the great flood the cataclysm nobody had any technology really so all they could do was just pass down information orally Originally, the sons of the gods were to not interfere with human development, but when Samyaza and the other leaders offered up their plan to descend to Earth, the 200 that chose to follow them fell to the planet and began breeding with human females. They taught humans knowledge not meant for their current state of civilization, and the children born from this, uh, this act of mixing between gods and mortals, the children were born and called Nephilim, the demigods of myth. And these Nephilim and Watchers are often associated with demons and the like, but there's actually corners of belief that say the Watchers did nothing wrong. I mean, they came to Earth to teach humanity knowledge. They enlightened them, teaching them healing, agriculture, and all the many nuances of advanced civilization. They look at it as the Watchers bringing humanity out of darkness. Oddly enough, though, humans are said to have lived much longer on Old Earth, the pre-Diluvian world, back before the Cataclysm, with some said to live like almost a thousand years or sometimes even more before dying of old age. 
They lived an insanely long existence uh, of just primitive hunting and gathering with little light of knowledge, without the ability to better their lives. This long lifespan seems cruel to those who take this point of view and look at the Watchers as saviors and redeemers, not corruptors. It's similar to the legend of Prometheus, giving humans fire against the will of the king of the gods, Zeus. Prometheus was then punished for assisting humanity in his sympathy for their harsh plight that the gods could quickly fix, but didn't. Prometheus was known for his intelligence and as a champion of humanity, authoring arts and sciences, and was the father of Deucalion, the hero of the Greek flood myth. It's a flood myth similar to that of the Bible, and one that every ancient culture has, even the Native Americans. Flood myths are universal in all root cultures, and the tale of godlike beings coming down to earth to enlighten humanity is shared across all mythology of the ancient world, with a consistent theme of this gift of enlightenment to humankind being punished harshly. In the Greek tale, the gods captured Prometheus, and Zeus decreed a horrific sentence for his blasphemy in giving enlightenment to humanity symbolized in the ancient tales as fire. Prometheus was sentenced to eternal torment until the end of time. The immortal was held down onto a large rock by the gods, and they tied him there in an unbreakable chain built by Hephaestus, the god of the forge. Every day an eagle would come to Prometheus and slowly eat his liver, savoring every rip of flesh. And after every single time that the eagle was finished, before the next day, the titan's liver would just regenerate, and his skin would heal back to normal. And this process would be repeated for thousands of years. That is, until the demigod Hercules rescued him from the suffering, and Hercules could very much be considered Nephilim. But in the end, Prometheus was responsible for all good things humanity possessed, and civilization itself. But why exactly did the gods fear giving humanity knowledge? Why was the punishment so harsh for merely making our lives better? Could Zeus have possibly feared us? Why would a god fear a mortal? Brings up a lot of interesting questions that will be answered in time. We just gotta delve deeper into the lore. And just like Prometheus, the Watchers were incredibly hands-on with their education of humanity. Now, the, um, the principal angels, or I guess the main Watchers that are that take the blame for a lot of this, at least in Orthodox thought, is Azazel, Ramiel, and Samyaza. Azazel is particularly of note. Because if you know anything about demonology, this entity is very notorious. Whereas the other sons of the gods taught humanity science, astronomy, building great architecture, and the essence of knowledge associated with civilization in general, Azazel had no such interests. In the book Paradise Lost, Azazel is the guardian of the goat, a demon of the second order and standard-bearer of the rebellious fallen angels. In Islamic culture, 
Azazel is often associated with Iblis, who is a jinn or genie that was cast out by God because he refused to acknowledge humans as anything special, much less kneel to them. There's no connection between Azazel and Iblis. Totally separate mythology, though these Abrahamic religions really do like to just pick and choose what they want to put into their canon based off of other material. In some lore, Azazel is an archdemon of the desert and the king of the Serim, an ancient race of goat-like spirits. He's also the lord of the scapegoat, which is an ancient ritual that the Hebrews did, as well as many others, where they'd put all of the sins of the community into a goat, and then they'd sacrifice this goat to cleanse themselves for redemption and the cleansing of sins. Azazel being one of the lords of this ritual, and depicted as a demonic goat-looking entity that is popular in death metal music, mainstream media stuff, and common depictions of demons, though he is in no way just the sole depiction of this type of entity whatsoever. Because a lot of the other demonic entities depicted this way, he has no association with. Azazel as the Watcher, though, is... He's basically like a... What you would think of like a god, like I guess the angel, whatever, some he's like a divine being. This is before he started to be depicted that way. And whereas the other watchers were all about bringing humanity, knowledge, and enlightenment, and having all kinds of children with human women, Azazel had no interest in whatsoever. He took no wife and showed no real reverence in what they were all betraying. Which makes you wonder exactly what was his motive for coming to Earth if he didn't want to do any of the stuff that they were coming to Earth to do. You see, there has to be more to the story lost during its oral tradition period because the entity seemingly has no motive to abandon his duty. What Azazel was interested in though was teaching humans how to make knives, swords, and weapons of war, as well as strategy, tactics, the quickest way to kill one's enemies in the least painful manner. He taught people how to attack others in a way that would efficiently kill them, essentially. Not just cripple or maim them or leave them in suffering. <laughs> Pretty much teaching humans the earliest versions of martial arts, I guess. And how to organize in groups to take on conflict. He showed women how to use makeup and cosmetically enhance their beauty so they could better seduce the fallen angels. He teaches humans how to shape stone, dye clothing, and all around the basics of manipulating the nature around them to their advantage. He taught humans how to make bases, fortifications, defenses, and all around changing them from possible prey to predators. Or at least the ability to stand their own. And then there's Samyaza, the Watcher's main leader. He taught humans magic, mysticism, and how to use stars to alter their lives. He taught forbidden knowledge of the universe, and all around the mysteries behind the veil of reality, I guess. Samyaza appears to have had God's trust utterly and maybe a special connection with the Elohim. 
because he was even given command over an archangel, Ramiel. In some cases, it can even be seen that Semyaza wasn't even really interested in descending to Earth. Still, the Watchers eventually convinced him by swearing oaths and whatnot, and he did descend to lead them. Here's a quote about Samyaza from Enoch 6, 3-5. I quote, And Samyaza, who was their leader, said unto them, I fear ye will not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath, and all bind ourselves by mutual imprecations not to abandon this plan but to do this thing. Then swear they all together and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. End quote. Some suggest that Samyaza is an early version of Satan, and his name just being a different name for Satan. But this is not the case. This watcher fell far off the game board before the destruction of Old Earth by the Great Flood. Well, <laughs> he's pretty much never mentioned again. And, uh, you'll see why soon enough. However, you gotta ask yourself, did Samyaza really just abandon such an honorable position among the heavenly hosts just to fornicate with human women? Seems pretty far-fetched to risk eternal torment just for that. And in some traditions, we do get some cryptic answers concerning the overarching accepted narrative, such as Samyaza abandoning his duty for love. The angel fell in love with Ishtar, a Babylonian and Canaanite mother goddess of the Elohim who dwelled on Earth. Now, this is much more fringe knowledge, but it makes a little bit more sense from our modern perspective because, I mean, Come on. Still, there's yet another version of Samyaza coming to Earth, and it too is for love. But instead of Ishtar, it's for a woman named Lilith, the first woman before Eve who was made at the same time and refused to submit to Adam and was banished from the garden because of it. Lilith may be missing from the Christian canon, but she's a very real thing in both ancient Hebrews and even some modern Jewish crowds. Samyaza, one of the Ben Elohim, sons of the gods, fell in love with her and was really inspired by her assertiveness and courage to stand up to Yahweh. Supposedly, she also became something far more than human, but I must admit, this these, these don't come from necessarily reliable sources, at least to me, but many consider this all legitimate lore. And despite any of that, anyway, it's a really interesting take on the Watchers, especially Samyaza. And then this whole period of the Watchers living among humans and creating Nephilim, the Nephilim would go on to create entire empires, and this goes on for thousands of years. Many thousands of years. Well, actually, the timeline changes depending on what lore you're looking at, but let's just go with thousands and thousands of years. In the end, though, Samyaza had the unfortunate experience of being confronted by Heaven's greatest warrior, the Archangel Mikael, 
who's pretty much tier one and could take on any other archangel, angel, or any other divine being in creation, according to Christian lore. But let's not get into the fate of Samyaza just yet, because we have one more of the leaders of the Watchers to go over, and that is Ramiel, the Archangel. And like I said in the last episode, there's many other leaders of the Watchers, but these are the three that are the most important in, in the spotlight. Though I don't remember if I mentioned it or not, but Azazel didn't even really seem to come into prominence until they came to Earth. Anyway, uh, Ramiel is an archangel, and based off what we know about the Elohim, he probably is one of these original Elohim of the original generation of gods. In fact, probably all of the first generation of gods could be analogous to archangels, with the Ben Elohim, the sons of the gods, being a little bit more deluded and less powerful. But somehow Samyaza convinced this archangel to betray God and descend to Earth with them. The only one to do so, and the only one shown any leniency by Yahweh. Ramiel taught humanity about hope, something they'd never unlearn. He would also teach human shamanism and the awareness of prophetic abilities as well as awakening psychic abilities. And there are those who consider Ramiel to have been a divine secret agent of sorts because his name translates to Thunder of God and remains still to perform his holy duties. The Archangel taking no mortal woman to bed and committing no sin while he was on earth. Ramiel facilitates fear and release to the dying and leads them to heaven. The Archangel gives the dying courage to pass on and let go. The one-time Watcher even escorts the worthy to the divine realms. But how exactly could a fallen angel, well, from the Christian perspective at least, how could this fallen angel still perform its duties after portraying God? As I said, apparently he was the only one of the Watchers to be forgiven, and more likely it was part of the plan for him to go along with Samyaza in the first place. However, Ramiel should not be confused with Ramiel, another one of the Watchers, and currently, allegedly, an unredeemed demon. Their names are so similar, it's easy to confuse the two, but they're very different. And also, Ramiel has been mistranslated as Uriel, which can be kind of confusing. I know people like to say Uriel, but I was taught Uriel. Uriel is an archangel, but he rules over a completely different paradigm. Ramiel is the archangel of hope, and the only watcher to receive amnesty. I'm going to take a quick break, don't go anywhere. Um, when we get back, we're going to move on past the leaders of the Watchers and go into the story of the Watchers themselves. You are listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Hey. 
Hi there. Thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. The show is sponsored by Blueberry, and if you're interested in starting your own podcast, use our link. Go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click on the Blueberry link on the homepage. By doing so, you'll be helping the show. Blueberry is optimized for iTunes as well as all podcast hubs. You won't have to worry about expensive contracts or fees. In fact, you won't have to leave your own website. You'll have your own RSS feed and no third-party sites. Try it for a month free by going through Cryptic Chronicles. Also, if you're a fan of cryptic content, please support the show on Patreon. By giving just $1 a month, you can really assist us in posting more content frequently. You'll also have access to bonus ad-free episodes of the show and the Discord channel. To keep up with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and of course, Facebook. Give the Facebook page a like and join the Cryptic Chronicles group. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for supporting the show. But most of all, thanks for listening. Now, the thing about the Watchers is that there's a lot of Watchers. There were over 200 Fallen Angels, so I could go on about them forever. It was a mutual effort in teaching all humanity all of the technologies that it took to create civilization. So it wasn't just the three top guys I was just talking about or the, you know, the rest of the leaders. It was a group effort. They also taught humans specifically to smite evil spirits in cruel ways, which is kind of interesting and in a way, gave us everything we know. So how exactly were them teaching humanity these things detrimental to us? To some, they seem as champions of humanity, or even guardians, which was their original intent and duty. However, if their interference was solely based on benevolence, why are they called demons, fallen angels, and profaners? The pre-Diluvian, or the old earth humans knew nothing of slander, blasphemy, or any of the things that led us to conflict. It's said that humanity back then coexisted peacefully with nature, though in a very primal way. They knew nothing of magic, greed, sophisticated weaponry, and lived in a blissful ignorance far more serene than any modern human could ever hope to be in. In a sense, they had nothing to worry about and were one with the earth. I guess. Though the humans of this time did lack consciousness to a degree. Whether the Watchers sought out conquest or enlightenment is up for debate. Depending on who you ask, they can either be Prometheus descending to enlighten us, or pure evil here to corrupt us. I found many conflicting beliefs depicting the Watchers. Some saviors, others corruptors, but despite their intentions, According to Enoch's book, their influence on humanity not only corrupted us, but also caused mass destruction and suffering on a global scale because of their offspring, the Nephilim. Apparently, the Nephilim have caused a lot of trouble over the eons. The Watcher's children are a myriad of things based on what source the information is coming from. As I've already said, um... In some, they're analogous to heroes of myth like Hercules. 
with the translation of the word Nephilim being 90% wrong across the board. Though it is important to remember that the ancient word for, or the ancient notion for a hero doesn't mean the same thing to the ancients as it does to us in modern times. But this is actually pretty common because, well, as an example, the, um, a good example is the modern and ancient understandings of the word virtue, which to the ancients actually means strength, power, might, etc. The Romans considered themselves virtuous for conquering their neighbors. The word hero to the ancients is similarly different to in that way than at least uh, to a modern perspective. One of the biggest mistakes that anyone can really make when looking at the past is looking at the past through modern eyes, which basically just screws up the whole thing. To be a hero is to be strong and mighty, not necessarily good or righteous or things of that nature. So though the word Nephilim is commonly mistranslated, these demigods were anything but heroic, honorable good guys saving humanity from monsters and whatnot. No, there's never anything so black and white, so there's probably a lot of virtuous Nephilim. Or, I mean, good guy Nephilim who had some sort of morality, but those were most likely the minority, at least to the Hebrew and Christian, or any of the Abrahamic religion uh, view on this subject. In any case, shortly after the first generation of Nephilim were born, it didn't take long for things to go south. The Nephilim were granted rulership over human kingdoms and kind of let the power go to their head. They started to consume basically all that man had built out of the teachings by the Watchers. Before too long, the Nephilim turned on humanity itself, killing them, eating them, and enslaving them. And the Watchers did little to stop the chaos. And when the Nephilim became bored of killing humans, they uh, turned on each other. The children of the Watchers conquered all of the pre-Diluvian world and created their own realms that warred amongst each other just as much as the human civilizations war against each other today. And somehow there wasn't really a response to all this going down from, a, from heaven or, or God or anything like that, and this went on for a long time. Why it took so long to get some notice, who knows, but eventually the other archangels noticed the chaos that was engulfing old Earth and brought the matter before the Elohim. And it did not take very long for the Elohim to cast their judgment and thought it was a good time for a family reunion between angels. Archangel Uriel was given instructions for future events and this is kind of where Enoch comes into prominence in the story. And the archangels Raphael and Mikael are sent to confront their wayward brothers. However, Samyaza is not given the full blame for the horrific corruption of humanity and Earth, I guess. Instead, much of the responsibility and aggression from the Elohim was aimed at Azazel, because no other Watcher had turned humanity more against the Elohim or caused more harm by what they taught innocent humans than what Azazel taught, so the Fury of Heaven was mostly focused on him. And though Samyaza wasn't about to get immediately smited by Mikhail, Samyaza was not going to get off easy, to say the least. And this encounter is mostly just like a warning, I guess, or I don't know exactly what Mikhail's objective was, but 
He doesn't really do anything to Samyaza right at this encounter. And it seems like they were kind of still investigating the situation at this point. Because later, Mikael goes back to the other archangels and tells them of all the sins he's discovered that Azazel committed and whatnot, and how much he detests the fallen angel. But it is actually Archangel Raphael tasked with capturing Azazel, not Mikael. Probably because Mikael was more like was more likely to just like uh, you know, just murder the crap out of him right then and there. Raphael, on the other hand, is a lot more intellectual. And when he did go to confront Azazel, the Watcher was no match for the power of an Archangel. The fight was over very quickly. Raphael then binds Azazel hand and foot and throws him into the darkness by opening a hole in the desert of Dudale. Dudale uh, being a realm in the underworld before the concept of hell took over as in Christian beliefs. Though the underworld is also considered Earth itself, our regular everyday material existence us humans have is considered the underworld. But that's controversial in modern times. It was very much accepted in ancient times. Well, not, in, not among everybody, but among many. You're always going to get different points of view on stuff, no matter where you go. Because Dudale is also seen as a straight-up stereotypical underworld similar to Hades from Greek mythology. Though the idea of Earth being the underworld, or our, our material universe being the underworld, I mean, will come into play later again. But Raphael throws Azazel down into the darkness and then throws down jagged stones on top of him, piling them on top of the Watcher. Azazel, the fallen angel, was in agony, but his cries were died out eventually because he was so covered in jagged rocks. The Elohim then decree that Azazel will forever exist without light from that point forward. And Raphael was tasked with being Azazel's final executioner. That at the end of days, the Watcher would be thrown into the fire during the Day of Judgment by Raphael himself. And not only that, Raphael was also tasked with being the jailer, I guess, of Azazel? Probably more like a probation officer, because this is not the last that we're going to see of Azazel. Now, this whole encounter between Azazel and Raphael is interesting for many reasons, but I couldn't find why Raphael is explicitly chosen to take out Azazel. Also, I couldn't find just why Azazel hated the Elohim so much and why he was so obsessed with turning humanity into something formidable. But it's all these cryptic aspects of all this that make it so fascinating to me. And I've often thought just why Raphael, of all the archangels or entities in heaven or whatever, was tasked specifically with Azazel's capture, jailer, and executioner, personally assigned by the Elohim. Raphael is the best archangel, if you didn't know. <laughs> well, at least I think he is. And he's very, very much associated with Tehuti. And though he's the last warrior archangel that you'd think of any of them being, because he's not really a warrior, he also takes out another, like, super mega greater demon, Asmodai. He completely terminates Asmodai's reign of terror in the Book of Tabit. Raphael is the archangel of knowledge, healing, perception, communication, intellect, and a bunch of other stuff. I'm kind of getting off topic. Uh, so... Uh, so after Raphael went to go take out Azazel, 
Archangel Mikhail was sent to go confront Samyaza, and he had some pretty bad news. The Archangel tells the Watcher that all their children, and, and I mean all their children, shall perish before their eyes. He doesn't just mean the Nephilim, but the other sons that are among the ranks of the Elohim, their children with other divine beings. Like apparently the Elohim, or I guess since we're looking at the book of Enoch right now, the other angels actually had offspring with one another. Mikael tells Samyaza that everything that they'd built will be destroyed before their very eyes, and they will know the judgment of the Elohim. But still, Michael doesn't do anything and just leaves the fallen angel there with that uh, depressing foreshadowing. But Raphael and Gabriel were not the only ones on a mission because secretly Archangel Gabriel also had some uh, mayhem to cause. He was secretly dispatched to... I guess the best way to put it would be causing infighting and discord and unrest among the Nephilim to make them have infighting and attack one another. Gabriel was basically sent to be a secret agent to divide and conquer, instigating conflicts from the shadows. And it's at this point that not only the Nephilim, but the Watchers began to understand that their world was kind of falling apart. Well, at least the intelligent ones. The Watchers had taken on physical form when they came to Earth, but they were starting to realize that they could not ascend to heaven anymore. And this made them worry about heaven's coming wrath, which they probably should have been worried about. They taught humanity the secrets of heaven, and the Nephilim destroyed humans and everything that all of them had worked to build. Right about now, the Watchers were very worried after Azazel was captured, and their ability to manifest beyond physical material matter was gone. The chosen prophet of the Elohim, Enoch, drew to him the Watchers. The Watchers could no longer communicate with the Elohim, and prayers were useless to them, so the only option that they did have was going through Enoch. And Enoch totally engaged the Shining Ones willingly, even though it was probably pretty freaky. They told him that they could not ascend from Earth any longer, and that they regretted what they'd done. They wanted Enoch to, on their behalf, go ask for forgiveness for them, and for corrupting humanity and ushering in an age of the Nephilim and everything. Which is funny, with these divine beings being so humbled, having to go to a mere human to communicate with heaven and the rest of the Elohim. In a lot of my research, other people who have researched it thought that this must have been humiliating and a punishment on top of everything that has happened and was yet to happen still. So, yeah. And Enoch, being a good prophet, of course, communicated the message. And the Elohim responded quite quickly, telling him their response to what the Watchers were saying. And it's not good news. They no longer had any favor with the Elohim. Enoch told them that they were doomed and would never have peace. No mercy was in store for them, and they'd know the meaning of regret for their actions which freaked the Watchers out pretty bad, and they trembled with uh, fear and repentance, and 
were horrified knowing that they'd never find forgiveness and would be bound to the earth as long as the earth exists. Then after that, they'd be cast into fire. But as the Archangel Mikael told them, they wouldn't be bound beneath the earth until they'd witnessed all their children and everything that they'd built die. Both Nephilim and their Elohim offspring. Which is interesting because there's two dividing sectors of thought here now. Like I said earlier, the underworld is considered to be Earth in a lot of traditions, but at the same time, it's not in a lot of tra traditions as well, like especially with like the way that people look at things in modern times. But if you're looking at it from the more Gnostic or esoteric side, these Watchers and their Nephilim offspring are actually, their souls can't leave the Earth. These are demons, I guess, or the children of night, the children of shadow. When they die, they just can't go anywhere or do anything. But then in later books of Enoch, you have angels actually being chained up in a bottomless abyss in heaven itself. So there's different ways to look at it. Gotta remember all the symbolism and metaphor that comes with uh, these, uh, these ancient tales and scriptures. And I'm going to take a quick break. You're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Hello. My name is Nessie. You might remember me from such places as Loch Ness, because I'm the Loch Ness Monster. Cryptic Chronicles is... Sponsored by Blueberry. If you're interested in making your own podcast, just go to Blueberry.com or by going to CrypticChronicles.com, click on the sponsor link on the homepage. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you will not only be helping to support the show, but you'll also have the best podcasting host on the market. There's no contracts, and you can cancel any time. You'll have free 24-hour tech support, syndication with your own RSS feed, as well as a plethora of other goodies that only professional podcasters use. There's no third-party sites to log into. Never leave your own website. You remain in control. All you have to do is produce your podcast, write your blog post, and then publish with 29,000 plugins to pick from. By going through Cryptic Chronicles, you'll have one month free of the best podcast statistics, as well as one month free of the best podcast hosting. So go through our sponsor, Blueberry, today. And if you can, visit Loch Ness. Because I am very hungry. Hello, dear listener. Have you ever had a paranormal experience? A spiritual or esoteric experience? Have you ever seen a UFO or something that you could not explain? Have you ever witnessed anomalous activity that defies reality? Have you ever experienced unexplained mysteries of existence? 
If you have your own cryptic tale and would like to have it shared on the podcast, then call 1-800-757-6049 and leave a message of your experience. If it's what Cryptic Chronicles is all about, then it will be shared on the show. Just make sure you thought about what you will say ahead of time and give a clear and concise account. Also make sure to leave your name, where you're from, or any information that will assist in making a clear picture to portray to listeners of Cryptic Chronicles. Once again, call 1-800-757-6049. That's 1-800-757-6049. We look forward to hearing from you. So as we left the state of things, Enoch was approached by the Watchers. Their leader Sumyaza had been rebuked by Archangel Mikael, and the response that Enoch gave them was not what the Watchers wanted to hear. Enoch's also known as the Scribe of Judgment, and he envisioned only pain and punishment for the Watchers. For 70 generations, they would remain imprisoned until the time of judgment. But this back and forth between the Watchers and the Elohim was only the start of Enoch's crazy journey. In the book of Enoch 21-2, Enoch is taken by the Archangel Uriel to a non-earthly realm that is believed to describe the prison of the Watchers. I quote, And there I beheld neither tremendous workmanship of an exalted heaven nor of an established earth, but a desolate spot, prepared and terrific." End quote. He then goes on to describe a great abyss with columns of fire descending down it, and Archangel Uriel tells Enoch, I quote, "'Why are you alarmed and amazed at this terrific place, at the sight of this place of suffering? This is the prison of the angels, and here they are kept forever.'" End quote. Not exactly sure why Uriel would wonder why such a psychedelic trip of an alien atmosphere wouldn't astonish Enoch, but there you go. I mean, it seems blatantly pretty freaky to show a guy used to living in an ancient human culture all kinds of crazy stuff like that and like get weirded out when he acts astonished by it. Uriel could have been trolling Enoch, I guess, but maybe there's something more we're just missing. And like I said in the last episode, there seems to be some contradictions and the texts most likely had multiple authors. In Enoch Book 2, Enoch is taken through many levels of heaven, and it's in the fifth layer of heaven that he comes across the Grigori, which in Greek means Watcher, but is still distinctly spelled different from the Watchers in previous books. So there's no... There's no proof or like link between the Grigori and the Watchers, but a lot of people just assume that they're the same thing, just different authors, but believe whatever you want. Could just be different interpretations. I could be wrong, it could be the same thing, but anyway, the Grigori appear humanoid for the most part when Uriel takes Enoch to this crazy, like abyss prison place. And, uh, and yet, the entities that are the angels that are imprisoned there look pretty human, unlike many of the more cosmic horror-esque angels that are that are uh, described in the Bible. The only obvious difference being their enormous size. 
and their appearance was ragged, grim, gaunt, and silent. And out of all the different layers of heaven that Uriel had shown him, this one was the most not heaven-like. Not quite a hellish abyss, but not a good place you want to be. Enoch was obviously very curious to who these depressing giant entities were, which is saying something right there, they obviously weren't watchers to him, or the way that they were represented in the material plane at least. But Enoch asked the angels that walked with him who they were. They said that these were the Grigori, once led by a prince named Santael, which I stated in last episode. Which sounds an awful lot like Satan, but I don't know. The way that Satan is translated properly, it's more like a title than a singular entity's name. Yeah, Jesus or Yeshua does see a Satan in the desert in the Bible and a vision of him falling from heaven. But the context is up for debate because there seems to have been many Satans throughout the ancient texts, often working and coinciding with uh, with uh, God himself, which is pretty heretical to say. But the word Satan means opposer, and entities called Satan actually work in a purpose, a greater purpose. So this ancient description of Santael is fascinating, especially since he's described as a prince. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that there can't be a Satan entity or that there is no Satan, I'm just looking at it from like a s objective analyzation. But some will say that Sam, let's just say that things get really mucky concerning Satan. And for very distinct reasons, this Satanel does not have the physical attributes necessary to be Samyaza, we'll just say. Because eventually when Mikael does come for Samyaza, he is totally blinded not only his physical body that he was trapped on earth with, but his eternal body as well. His eyes are just blazed out and he's locked away in a, an abyss and we never see Samyaza again. But these Grigori uh, do mirror the tale of the Watchers. They seem to have gone to earth and also seduced mortal women. It's also specifically mentioned that the children of these unions caused chaos on earth. And then none of that is ever mentioned again or explained, or anything, it just cuts off. But a passage is ripped off almost word for word and put in the book of Revelation about Satan being cast out from a great height. And the apostles in the New Testament did have access to the book of Enoch and even reference him many times. So it makes sense that this was cut out, ripped off, and put in Revelation. I'm wondering what you're thinking. What do you think? Do you think that this, uh, this prince is Satan? Is this group of Grigori the Watchers? In any case, the visualizations from all of this must have inspired lots of Satan stuff and put in the book of Revelation. And Enoch, despite what he sees and what the angels tell him, he still prays for the imprisoned entities. And as he's doing so, they creepily attempt to sing out to God in a very pathetic way. Despite Enoch's prayers for them, it's made very clear to Enoch just how despised these entities were to the rest of the divine beings in heaven. There was no hope for them whatsoever, and if they are the Watchers, 
only one would escape this horrible fate. Or maybe two, as you'll see later. And Uriel continues to take Enoch throughout the different layers and realms of heaven, and it seems pretty sci-fi. Could really be translated as he's in a spaceship. But back on Earth, the Nephilim themselves also kind of begin to realize that something's off. The demigods were having dreams of a terrible cataclysm. They ruled the Earth, so it seemed impossible that the cataclysm was about them, but many were also drawn to the chosen one, Enoch. So when Enoch was eventually brought back to Earth, he, uh, he had a lot of Nephilim waiting to talk to him, I guess. Now, the original parts of this story on the ancient scrolls have not survived. A lot of this part of the lore is destroyed, thanks to time and the elements. But we can kind of piece together that the Nephilim were asking about the dreams to Enoch, and Enoch tells them that they are true. They must change their ways or they will perish. But the Nephilim thought the dreams were for humans, not them. They didn't even believe that they could be destroyed, they were so powerful. But I'm sure part of them knew that something was up, and the writing was on the wall. Not only for the, the Watchers as a whole, but the Nephilim too. Because eventually, the Archangels of the Elohim do descend to Earth and capture all the Watchers. In none of the texts, there's any hint that the Watchers attempt to resist, but they are damned nonetheless. One of the Nephilim, Maui, realizes just how screwed they all are, but not really any of the other Nephilim fully realize their predicament. The Nephilim kingdoms had been at war with one another for a, a long time thanks to the work of uh, Archangel Gabriel, but Gabriel's task was just a pregame. The Elohim were going to set things fully right and reset the button on civilization, the whole caboodle. But these Elohim seem to work super slow, <laughs> because that too doesn't happen for a couple generations after Enoch. Eventually, though, the Elohim enact a global cataclysm to cleanse the world of the offspring of the Watchers. And this is the Biblical Flood, or the Flood myth found in all ancient cultures throughout all history. Every ancient civilization has a Flood myth, and according to very real geological science, there was indeed a global cataclysm around 11,000 years ago, when the, the last Ice Age ended. And the world was covered in a flood that obviously traumatized the subconscious of humans and would go on in oral traditions across all cultures. If you're into Carl Jung, you could even say that it was imprinted on the collective unconscious. With these shared myths, objective fact going all the way back to the Neolithic cultures. And they almost universally share a theme of divine retribution or a cleansing of sort, a cleansing of a corrupted earth. And these myths extend from Africa to the Americas to Europe from civilizations that don't even have any recorded contact with one another. They come from Sumeria, which is probably the version that inspired the biblical version. You know, Mesopotamia, the first recorded human civilization that, uh, well, the first accepted, but it's basically unmatched for millennia in its technology despite being the oldest accepted mainstream recorded civilization. These myths are also found in, in, and then it's from India, China, Egypt, you name it. Whatever happened, 
something triggered the end of the Ice Age. And just how much of these myths have slivers of truth? Well, we don't know, because nothing to very little of what was before this cataclysm concerning humanity actually remains. With the very globe changing its landmass and probably the tilt of its axis if certain people are to be believed. But mainstream science hates this stuff, and anything that comes before this cataclysm is called forbidden archaeology, or pseudoscience archaeology, and you can't really blame them because science only really works with things to measure or compare against to other things. And if there's no evidence, how can you use science on it? The answer is you can't. So there's actually limitations to the scientific method. But since humans have a need to sum up everything in nice little labels, giving us a false sense of control or understanding, the current mainstream narrative goes against any theories concerning the pre-Diluvian world before the Cataclysm, which logically makes sense. But at least we have our myths to entertain our imaginations concerning humanity's forgotten history. Because I'll tell you now, it's 100% objective fact that there is far more that we don't know than what we do know concerning history. In the Bible, the tale of Noah, who survives with his family and the animals, I'm sure that you're familiar with the tale, but with, uh, with Enoch being the father of Methuselah, who was the father of Lamech, the grandfather of Noah, a lot of time passes before this actually goes down, before the Nephilim are judged and uh, Enoch gave them their warning and the Archangel Mikael was telling him that he was going to mess him up. And there was, there was a lot more that I wanted to cover, but it looks like we're running out of time. Um, so I'm going to do the rest of what I want to go over in the next episode concerning the Nephilim, Watchers, Enoch, and the possible apotheosis of Enoch. However, with some of the ancient text missing and damaged and destroyed, there's some that's just left to speculation. Mikhail does come back and wreck Samyas's day, though. Like I already said, burning out his eyes, his, not only his physical eyes, but his eternal eyes, throwing him in an abyss, and locking away the key. But after the flood, Mikhail would hunt down all the Watchers. Which I wish that there was more lore on, because that sounds pretty badass. And not all the Nephilim are wiped out, some survived the flood. In the Book of Giants, another apocryphal book taken out of the scriptures, Two of Samyaz's children even are shown to survive, who take on a giant sea monster called the Leviathan and come out on top. And still later, when the Canaanites or the Israelites come across the land of Canaan, they come across remnants of the Nephilim, to which some of the Israelites are like, yeah, no big deal, we can take them. But then the rest are like, are you insane? Though they did eventually manage to defeat the Nephilim with the help of the Elohim, and at least according to the Bible, this was the last time that Nephilim are mentioned mainstream-wise. Like I said in the last episode, giants like Goliath, who were slain by King David, have a different Hebrew name in their description. So, totally separate thing. But there's so much lore surrounding the Nephilim, so don't worry, there's plenty to come. Because they're really found in myth and lore from all cultures around the ancient world. There's a lot to... There's a lot to talk about, trust me. And Enoch himself has much more interesting lore to cover, and in the Abrahamic religions, he's actually one of the few to never die. 
and quite possibly much more than any human soul has ever become or ever will become afterward. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Cryptic Chronicles is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Spreaker, and basically all podcast hubs. No matter what podcast host you have, we should be there. So last episode, I asked you guys to leave me good reviews and good job because we're trending again in Canada. Still not really at the level to reach the US numbers though, so if you can, please leave a good review on iTunes or wherever you do listen to the podcast, please leave a good review. I will love you forever and it really helps us. And we're getting there towards the goal. But also make sure to subscribe on to all of our social media accounts. We're on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit. You can find direct links to those on the homepage over at crypticchronicles.com or crypticchroniclespodcast.com, either or. Also, make sure that you go check out the YouTube channel. Make sure you come join the Facebook group too because it's pretty hopping and we got a bunch of weird stuff to entertain you with. But if you're a true seeker of the mysteries and lover of the ineffable nature of the universe, then you might want to support us on Patreon. Though the podcast is free, the production cost is substantial. And you know how karma works, so if you give stuff back, guess what's coming your way? Awesome stuff. I mean, if all the entertainment I give you is worth just a mere dollar, then guess what? For just a dollar a month, you unlock uncensored episodes of the show. You uh, get access to exclusive episodes of the show that's not available outside of Patreon. The show's ad-free as well as getting an early release before anybody else gets to hear it. You'll also get YouTube videos early other than the SCP ones. I'm going to release more exclusive episodes to the Patreon. Depending on the pledge, you can also have all kinds of other goodies, like even coming on the show to co-host with me, choosing the topic of a show, and I'll just do an entire show on it and research the crap out of it. Um, Yeah, check it out. Just go to the website, the link's at the top. It's going to be labeled as The Chronicler's Vault, crypticchronicles.com, crypticchroniclespodcast.com. Link is right there at the top. Just click on The Chronicler's Vault and then the Patreon option. We also have links to the Patreon on social media, um, even the YouTube channel, so plenty of ways to find it. It shows you're a real fan. You're a real cryptic chronicler. And... Let's end this with a shout out to the most badass people who ever lived, my patrons. Mark Lane, the original first patron I ever had. Such a lovely man, Mark. You are awesome. And quit working out so much, you make me look bad. And of course, Angie Allen, who is basically the head admin of the, the Facebook group. Angie's awesome. We're friends and she's just a wonderful, wonderful, amazing person. 
and thank you for running the Facebook group so well. And of course, Kenny, my homie, he is the second longest patron, I believe. Kenny is a total badass, awesome dude. Leanna Watts, thank you. Stephanie Wilkie, thank you. Linda Gonzalez, thank you. And of course, the newest patron, Paul. Paul the Mighty. I know I don't have much to say on some of my patrons, but interact with me more and I like get to know you better. I can, I'll say more in these thank yous for patrons. Cause I can only really say thank you to a lot of you cause I never interact with you. So go ahead and interact with me more <laughs> and I'll say more. And as patrons, I'm always going to give you the shout out and I'm always going to put you on all the YouTube videos at the end as well. Thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. I'm your host, Tim Hacker. And as one of the wisest men who ever lived once said, new beginnings are often disguised as painful endings.